Welcome to Blazing History, where we are blazing through history one week at a time. Facebook.com slash Blazing Shows. It's B-L-A-I-S-I-N Shows. Same with Twitter. And my brand new website. Go check it out. BlazingShows.com. That's B-L-A-I-S-I-N Shows.com. I'm Blaze Bryant. Hope all is well and that you've had a good week as it's time to blaze through the various things that have happened in history. We're going to go through January 29th through February 4th. That's what we're working with this week. And on January 29th of 2002, President George W. Bush, the 43rd president of the U.S., gave a speech about the axis of evil from his State of the Union address, and we have that clip here from 19 years ago today, from January 29th. North Korea is a regime arming with missiles and weapons of mass destruction while starving its citizens. Iran aggressively pursues these weapons and exports terror, while an unelected few repress the Iranian people's hope for freedom. Iraq continues to flaunt its hostility toward America and to support terror. The Iraqi regime has plotted to develop anthrax and nerve gas and nuclear weapons for over a decade. This is a regime that has already used poison gas to murder thousands of its own citizens, leaving the bodies of mothers huddled over their dead children. This is a regime that agreed to international inspections, then kicked out the inspectors. This is a regime that has something to hide from the civilized world. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world by seeking weapons of mass destruction. These regimes pose a grave and growing danger. They could provide these arms to terrorists, giving them the means to match their hatred. They could attack our allies or attempt to blackmail the United States. In any of these cases, the price of indifference would be catastrophic. We will work closely with our coalition to deny terrorists and their state sponsors the materials, technology, and expertise to make and deliver weapons of mass destruction. We will develop and deploy effective missile defenses to protect America and our allies from sudden attack. And all nations should know America will do what is necessary to ensure our nation's security. We'll be deliberate, yet time is not on our side. I will not wait on events while dangers gather. I will not stand by as peril draws closer and closer. The United States of America will not permit the world's most dangerous regimes to threaten us with the world's most destructive weapons. That is President George W. Bush from January 29th of 2002, as this was just months after 9-11, and as we were waging the war in Afghanistan, 
and about to do so in Iraq. I was just 10 years old at the time, and hearing that, I remember hearing it then, and I remember hearing it now, and wow, it's just a really, frankly to me, very chilling thing. Moving on to January 30th on this date in 1948, Mohandas Gandhi was assassinated, the leader of India who strived for equity and independence and believed that everyone had a shot. We have a tribute from shortly after his death. I'm not sure exactly when this was recorded, but as we pay tribute to Gandhi, who was assassinated on January 3rd, 1948. A little figure of Mohandas Gandhi held a spirit more powerful than a hundred tyrants. Reverent crowds followed him the length and breadth of India in his unceasing pilgrimage to raise the people up to the light of freedom. Gandhi, an orthodox Hindu, was born in 1869 into a Bania family of Indian class traditions. He renounced his position and wealth to form a group whose ideas confounded the brutes of the world. He spread his philosophy across a continent that had languished for centuries under unwelcome rule, erupting time and again into bloody rebellions. Love, Gandhi said, and meet unjust laws with nonviolent disobedience. His disciples picked up his gentle fervor and carried his message across the deprived provinces of India, where frustrated groups sometimes ignored his good example. Gandhi fasted in penance and often was condemned to prison. Aware of his nation's shortcomings, a land separated by 14 assorted languages, hundreds of different dialects, and a deep-rooted caste system, he walked among untouchables, preaching and living the unity of brotherhood. In England, 40 years of bitter striving for Indian independence began to bear fruit as Gandhi arrived there with fellow representatives. The English, traditionally uncomfortable in the role of tyrant, were ready to drop the yoke. In 1947, the English announced a partition plan aimed at relieving hostilities between India's Hindus and Muslims. There was a bloodbath of repercussions, but it led to India's emergence as a sovereign, independent state. Ironically and tragically, true independence did not come until 1950. Gandhi did not live to see it. He was assassinated in 1948. The man who had done more than any other for a nation that revered him as a living saint was lost to it and the world. The funeral procession crossed the land now plunged into grief. From the most extreme perimeters of the earth they came, the famed, the humble, the great and unknown, to pay him homage. But none had the words. The world was stunned into silence. There was his urn. Gandhi was dead. There were no words. Prime Minister Nero, his most famous disciple, was as bereaved as the most forlorn, untouchable. All India went into mourning. An enduring legacy to his nation and the world was left by one small, fragile man, Mohandas K. Gandhi, a symbol of brotherhood, 
among the milestones of the century. Ah, you can't help but just feel a sadness as you hear that tribute to Mohandas Gandhi, who was assassinated on January 3rd, 1948. We move on to January 1st, and this is very recent history. Just before there was a global pandemic, it feels like a while ago, the United Kingdom bid adieu to the European Union. It has been a long goodbye, this business of the UK leaving the European Union, and it's not over yet. Officially, the UK is out at 11 p.m. here tonight, but this is less the end of what seemed like an endless process as the starting gun for what comes next. It's been an emotional farewell for some. Members of the European Parliament in Brussels sang Old Lang Syne for departing British members. But the UK will continue to pay membership dues and follow EU rules for the next year while a new trade deal is worked out, if it is. Freedom, democracy. It was a gloating goodbye for Nigel Farage, the British politician who has made it his life's work to get the UK out of Europe. I know you want to ban our national flags, but we're going to wave you goodbye. Put your flags away, you're leaving. Prime Minister Boris Johnson says Brexit will unleash Britain's potential. Others say it will diminish Britain and placed a love note on the white cliffs of Dover facing France. The winners and losers in the Brexit battle will hold respective rallies here today. For the winners, the celebration. For the losers, awake. The battle may be over, but Anthony, the arguments go on. <laughs> sure do. Mark Phillips in London, thanks. And that is from CBS this morning from January 31st of 2020. As the UK bid adieu to the EU, the European Union. And certainly it appears that the jury is still out as to whether that was a good move or not. As we move into the month of February that we're in now, 18 years ago on February 1st, 2003, the space shuttle Columbia was destroyed as it was finishing up its final mission. We have this report in memory, courtesy of the Smithsonian Channel, from or in reference to the Space Shuttle Columbia. This is a crew coming out of their crew quarters. On January 16, 2003, the shuttle Columbia launched with a crew of seven on a two-week science mission. We have booster ignition and liftoff of Space Shuttle Columbia with a multitude of national and international space research experiments. Roger, roll, Columbia. Com Columbia now rolling on to the proper azimuth for a 39-degree inclination to orbit. Shuttle in a heads-down wings-level position for the eight-and-a-half-minute ride to orbit. During their mission, they chatted with their astronaut colleague and friend, Ken Bowersox, who was on the space station. We had a sort of a public teleconference with them where we got to talk over the radio with one of the shifts of STS-107 crew. And it was really nice to be able to talk with them. The first time that I got to see the orbiter as the sun set, the whole payload day turns a beautiful, rosy, orange pink. 
It was funny, we were talking about what we were doing, the science we were doing, and then one of the crew members came up and said, hey, uh, enough of that, let's say, how are the families doing? <laughs> how are your kids? <laughs> a smooth and successful mission was coming to a close as Columbia approached Earth's atmosphere. This is amazing, it's really getting uh, really bright out there. Yeah, you definitely don't want to be outside now. <laughs> I don't know, I got the back of point. Columbia, Houston, com check. Columbia, Houston, UHF, com check. And flight ECOM. ECOM. I've got four temperature sensors on the bottom line data that are off scale low. GC flight. Flight GC. Lock the doors. Copy. No phone calls, off site outside of this room. Our discussions are on these loops, on the recorded Divas loops only. Minutes later, television was broadcasting this imagery to a stunned audience across the nation. For the first few hours, we were hoping that they'd be able to find someone that, that had survived. And then it became clear that that was less and less likely. Images NASA's of the ship being destroyed. is their record of success. They make it look so easy. Everyone that works on a space shuttle knows that every time a space shuttle makes it to orbit that a minor miracle has taken place. Investigators collected thousands of fragments of debris and slowly pieced together what happened. Insulation from Columbia's fuel tank broke off during launch and bounced off a wing, damaging the shuttle's all-important heat shield. Upon re-entry, the searing heat breached the shield and broke the shuttle apart. One of the lessons from Columbia was similar to the lesson on Challenger. Humans can make bad decisions. They can get comfortable with risk, maybe too comfortable with risk. All shuttles were grounded for two and a half years to overhaul the entire program. NASA knew that to succeed, a million things have to go right. Once again, they learned that to fail, only one thing has to go wrong. Wow. And that is from the Smithsonian talking about the destruction of the Space Shuttle Columbia from February 1st, 2003. As I'll tell you, we make jokes about space cadets and astronauts but let me tell you that is a job that is anything but for the faint of heart moving on to february 2nd on this day in 1990 a ban on the african national congress was lifted allowing nelson mandela to be released from prison which happened nine days later on the 11th we have this report from the CBC News from February of 1990. Good evening for 27 years. Six months and six days he had been a prisoner. During that time he became a legend, a symbol of black resistance to apartheid and to many he became a martyr. Tonight he is a free man. Nelson Mandela, the leader of the African National Congress. He walked out of a prison on a gloriously sunny South African afternoon. 
and there is general agreement that his freedom begins a new era in South Africa. This is a special edition of Sunday Report. We're taking the time usually filled by venture to bring you comprehensive coverage of a truly extraordinary day. A day so many have waited for for so long. The day Nelson Mandela was freed from prison. We start with the CBC's Jean-Francois Lepin. There's Mr. Mandela, Mr. Nelson Mandela, a free man taking his first steps into a new South Africa. Nelson Mandela emerged from his long nightmare as a simple man walking his way to freedom accompanied by his wife Winnie. But his release meant probably more to the whole world than to the man himself. In an unprecedented move, state-controlled television beamed Mandela's release live into the homes of millions of South Africans. Outside, crowds of supporters had waited hours for that very first glimpse of the man that most of them had never even seen before. Mandela was then driven to a huge rally that had been building up since early morning to welcome him. More than a quarter of a million people came here in the center of Cape Town, hoping to hear Mandela's first public address. At one point, the crowd was so dense and the security so inadequate that Mandela's motorcade couldn't make its way through. Organizers spent hours trying to control the situation, but it only led to further unrest. As groups of people began to leave the rally, riots and looting broke out in the streets, and South African police forces reacted in panic, shooting almost indiscriminately. Dozens of people were wounded, Journalists were also hit. As the violence went on, Nelson Mandela finally showed up at the rally. Obviously aware of what was going on outside in the streets, Mandela delivered a bold and defying speech clearly showing that his determination had not been softened by all those years in prison. The factors which necessitated the armed struggle still exist today. We have no option but to continue. But Mandela said that only negotiations could avoid the need for armed struggle. But he added that the black majority would not negotiate unless it is given full political rights. We call on the international community to continue the campaign to isolate the apartheid regime. To lift sanctions now would be to run the risk of aborting the process towards the complete eradication of apartheid. Mandela then called on the white minority to join what he said was the South African majority's recognition that apartheid had no future. Universal suffrage on a common voters' road in a united democratic and non-racial South Africa is the only way to peace and racial harmony. Mandela played down his role as a leader, 
He said a leader had to be elected, but the people at this rally clearly expect a leading role from the man who has been their guide for so long. Jean-François Lépine, CBC News, Cape Town. How about that? And here we are in the United States 31 years later, and while we're not necessarily dealing with apartheid, certainly racism is very much alive and well and what the solution is to fix the issues is a debate that we could have for seemingly the rest of time on february 3rd 1959 was the day the music died as three young singers were killed in a plane crash as reported by Action Network News on that day, February 3rd, 1959. We interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. Three young singers who soared to the heights of show business on the current rock and roll craze were killed today in the crash of a light plane in an Iowa snow flurry. The singers were identified as Richie Valens, 17, Buddy Holly, 22, and J.P. Richardson, known professionally as the Big Bopper. The aircraft chartered from the Dwyer Flying Service crashed near Mason City, ironically the setting for the prominent musical The Music Man. The pilot, Roger Peterson of Clear Lake, Iowa, was also killed. The three singers had appeared at the surf ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa last night and were on their way to Fargo, North Dakota. Their small chartered plane crashed in a lonely farmyard about 15 miles northwest of Mason City. Cause of the crash was due to inclement weather conditions. Details upcoming from Action Central News. All right, and that is from Action Central News from February 1959. Uh, The Big Bopper was a DJ who had uh, some success, and the pilot that was mentioned, he was just 21 years old, and by virtue of that, not a lot of experience dealing with inclement weather. Well, we have just a few minutes left, and we need to say happy birthday to the late Rosa Parks, who was born on February 4th, 1913. Here's an interview from 1995 as she talked about the civil rights movement, how it all started with the bus boycott. I was arrested on December 1st, 1955 for refusing to stand up on the orders of the bus driver after the uh, white seats had been occupied in the front. And of course, I was not in the front of the bus as many people and many people have written and spoken that I was, that I got on the bus and took a front seat, but I did not. I took a seat that was just back of where the white people were sitting. And in fact, the last seat, and the man was next to the window, and I took an aisle seat, and there were two women across. And we went on undisturbed until uh, about the second or third stop when some white people boarded the bus and left one man standing. And when the driver noticed him standing, he told us to stand up and let him have those seats. He referred to them as front seats. And when uh, the other uh, three people, after some hesitancy, uh, stood up, 
he wanted to know if I was going to stay, and I told him I was not, and he told me he would have me arrested. I told him he may do that. And, of course, he did. He uh, didn't move the bus any further than where we were and went out of the bus or sit in the door. And several people got off. Didn't any white people get off, but several other black people got off. And shortly uh, thereafter, he, the two policemen came on the bus, and one asked me if uh, the driver had told me to stand, and I said yes. And he wanted to know why I didn't stand. I told him I didn't think I should have to stand up. And then I asked him, why did they push us around? And he um, said, and I quote him, I don't know, but the law is a law and you are under arrest. And with that, I got off the bus under arrest. It was put in the paper that I had been arrested. And of course, there were people, Mr. E.D. Nixon, who was the legal redresser, chairman of the NAACP, of the, the Montgomery branch of the NAACP. And he'd been made a number of calls during the night and called a number of ministers. And they set a meeting for this. I was arrested on Thursday evening, and on Friday evening is when they had the meeting at the Vexed Avenue Baptist Church where Dr. Martin Luther King was a pastor. And a number of citizens came, and I told them the story. And then from then on, it became no, uh, news about my being arrested. And on my trial, which was December 5th, is when they found me guilty. And I was, uh, uh, the lawyers, uh, Fred Gray and Charles Langford, who were representing me, they filed an appeal, and of course I didn't pay any uh, fine. They set uh, a, a, a meeting at the Holy Street Baptist Church on the evening of uh, December 5th, because that was a, December 5th was the day the people stayed off in large numbers and did not ride the bus. In fact, most of the buses, I think all of them were just about empty, with the exception maybe a very, very few people. And when they found out that one day's protest had kept the people off the bus, they made a, uh, well, came to a vote actually, and it was unanimously decided that they would not ride the buses anymore until changes for the better were made. Wow, and that is Rosa Parks, the late Rosa Parks, talking about the bus boycott, 1955, start to the civil rights movement and police brutality, 60-plus years later, continues to be an issue. And coming up next week, we will preview what happened on this day or on this week in history from February 5th to February 11th. That's all the time we have. Thanks for listening to Blazing History, blazing through history one week at a time. What do you think? Let me know at facebook.com slash blazing shows. That's B-L-A-I-S-I-N shows. On Twitter at blazing shows. Or email me blazing shows at gmail.com. 
You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts or on my website, blazinshows.com. To quote the late Franklin D. Roosevelt, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Take care of yourself, and we'll talk again next week. On Blazin' History, I'm Blaze Bryant.